Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hey, Jim. Hey, Catherine. Hey, we got a uh, some feedback from some listeners, which I thought was a good note about Wednesday's episode about taking planes right now and the safety of it. Yeah. Um, we talked about the space of the plane, but we didn't talk about, you know, you have to take a car to get there. You have to check in. You have to sit in the security line. You stand in the True. security line. You have to sit in the terminal. You have to get on the plane, you know. Yeah. So your recommendation about the plane was it's like, for various reasons, it can be managed if you're really careful and aware of the risks. But does the calculation change when you're taking into account the getting there and the and the leaving? Yeah, you know, I think a, a lot of people have been concerned about and asking about planes themselves because it seems clearly like a big red flag, a bunch of people right. sealed together shoulder to shoulder in this vessel mm -hmm. for a long period of time. That's like everything we're told to avoid. Yep. And the surprising thing there is that that is actually a uniquely well-ventilated situation, so it's going to be safer than other similar scenarios that wouldn't have that kind of ventilation. Like, like even riding in a car with a stranger or something would yeah. be more dangerous possibly than getting on a plane. You have a, a an aversion to flying, right? A fear, uh, you might say, of flying. Um, A little bit. It used to be pretty severe. Yeah. Has anyone ever told you, you know, you're more likely to get killed on the way to the airport in the car? Than... Yeah, and it makes me want to slap them. Yeah. And then you slap them and then there's all kinds of other issues because... Right, because um, you slapped him. You shouldn't have yeah. slapped that person. <laughs> Definitely shouldn't have done that, yeah. But this actually might be a similar case where if you have to have a long car ride with, say, if it's an Uber or a taxi or if you're carpooling with people you don't who are not in your pool, I would think the air in the car, if you've got the windows up and, and the AC going, would probably be riskier than in an airplane. Okay. I mean, most people drive themselves to the airport because we're America. Right. We drive everywhere by ourselves, or or are driven by someone that they or dropped are off already having yeah by close someone who with. is sort of an acquaintance and offered one time vaguely to do it, but didn't think he'd actually <laughs> take him up on it. Uh, and but if that person is like outside your bubble, or if you have to take an Uber or a cab or a public transit, those situations are not going to be as well ventilated as. A commercial air flight, and especially if you're sitting in air conditioning in a car, that's recirculating the air. So I would try to keep windows open. I would try to wear masks. I would try to travel with people who are in your bubble. Got it. Okay, what about actually being in the terminal and all of the interactions you have to do there, which is like getting your ticket? You know, I'm, I guess there are ways you can get your ticket on your phone or whatever, but then you got to stand yeah, in security. Yeah, it's pretty low touch gotta... now, huh? Yeah, that's true. That's true. So most airports are pretty capacious, hangar-like spaces with a lot of uh, high air-to-person ratio, mm -hmm. and they should be well-ventilated based on building codes, including in the mm -hmm. bathrooms. And if people are wearing masks in there and the TSA should be distancing people out while they're waiting in line, I don't see it being any riskier than any of the other Things that we occasionally need to do, like going to a pharmacy or grocery store. And I don't see unique risk there as long as, again, as long as people are being vigilant and responsible. Which is all to say, I'm just trying to give people an accurate sense of risk. I'm not saying everyone right. should just immediately go travel all willy-nilly. But if 
people will need to. There are basic reasons that people will need to get places, and I'm saying that that is it's possible to do with very low risk. Right. So the plane is sort of this unique environment, but all of the things to get onto and off of the plane are environments that you might be more likely to be dealing with similarly in your everyday life right now, including like how to travel in a car and how to be in a large space with other people, such as a grocery store or something. And all of the rules of those places apply. There's nothing like unique about, say, an airport. Yes. That would be different. But the plane is this sort of uniquely odd example. Exactly. If there was something unique about that process, I, I like to think I would have mentioned it. And uh, sorry for not, not saying that, but uh, same basic rules apply. Okay. Distance and wear a mask and ventilate. And check in online. And don't make your friend drive you to the airport. <laughs> um, so today we have another listener question, which is a question I also have, and it's quite straightforward. WTF is going on with the CDC. WTF being internet slang for... <laughs> what, the, what the freak? Okay. Um, what the freak? Yeah, what is going on with the CDC? Yeah. CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So CDCP, but we call it CDC because it used to be the Communicable Disease Center, oh. which made more sense. Um, it was founded in 1946 to help track malaria and unify responses to it and then grew to encompass more centers for disease control, which were mainly infectious. What is the CDC's role in a pandemic? I mean, basically, data is the main thing that they do. Really? Like, so the CDC is the data collection agency? Yeah, they don't run the hospitals. They don't do research on the new therapeutics. They mm -hmm. keep track of the infections, where they're spreading. They'll raise warnings and alerts and make recommendations for what people should do to minimize continued spread. Um, you know, wash your hands. CDC guidelines say 20 seconds. But that would be because they tracked a pattern, and places where people were washing their hands for 20 seconds were not as susceptible. So CDC says this. So they're mainly in the tracking and reporting business. Okay. I mean, I have a lot of questions about the CDC and data collection throughout this pandemic, but the specific news this week that came out was that the Trump administration is requiring that hospitals send their data directly to the Trump administration rather than through the CDC. They were previously reporting it to the CDC. And that's a big WTF for me. Like, I don't that seems bad, but I didn't right. tell you why. <laughs> like, you couldn't? I, I mean, it seems like the CDC should definitely have the data, but maybe there's some, I don't know, like government bureaucracy is complicated. It definitely seems sus, right? Y yeah. Which is internet slang for suspicious. Oh. Um, yeah. Well, then I still think, yeah, my answer is yes. I mean, for, for a lot of reasons, like politics aside, handling any health data is something that is done very carefully in this country because we have long histories of discriminating against people with certain conditions and privacy is paramount to preventing discrimination in hiring or in who gets insurance at what rates, etc. So we handle right. health data really carefully and the CDC is equipped to do that. Okay, I want to talk about this, but I think we should bring in Alexis. We should also call Alexis Madrigal. He's the co-founder of the COVID Tracking Project, which was founded basically at the beginning of the pandemic when 
he realized that the CDC wasn't collecting data or, or at least um, displaying it publicly. Anyway, let's bring him in because I have many, many questions about this situation. Hello, hello. Can you guys hear me? Hey, yeah. Hey. Hey, Alexis. I was making uh, breakfast for the kids. <laughs> that sounds like a, a worthwhile activity. <laughs> um, sort of. Yeah, they're good eaters, so at least you feel <laughs> like you, you did something that was appreciated, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I'll sometimes request two breakfasts. He'll, like, eat the whole first thing, and then he'll be like, what else is for breakfast? And I'll be like, dude, you just had two eggs and a bowl of rice. He'd be like, how about cereal? Fair enough. <laughs> Oh, yeah. that's like what Not the hobbits right. do. They have second breakfast, right? <laughs> exactly. Essentially, as I understand it, I don't have one. That's right. That's, I think you're onto something. Okay. So we had a question from a listener that I share. WTF is going on with the CDC. Yeah. Well, you know, since the very beginning of this, you know, maybe not quite the beginning, um, but a, a few weeks in, there has been a pretty active effort from the White House to control the information that's going out from the federal government about the pandemic. And yeah. I mean, you founded the COVID tracking project in response to that. <laughs> Basically right? because like, of this problem. Your, yeah. your whole last six months have been like in response to this very thing, right? <laughs> that's exactly right. And um, basically when a CDC official says something that the administration doesn't like they don't let them go on tv anymore they and we this stuff is all in the public record it's not like something that's truly being hidden you know it's, yeah. it's um so now there is sort of a, a new phase of this which is that hospitalization data had fed through a cdc run system for for quite some time um i mean literally like i think it's a couple decades and I'm sure that that system was creaky. I'm sure that it, you know, was not purpose-built for this moment and all that kind of stuff. I'm sure there were issues with that data system. But it was a functional system that people knew about. Uh, people knew how to use at these various hospitals all across the country. And HHS, you know, Health and Human Services, um, which is sort of the umbrella organization that houses the CDC as well as a bunch of other um, efforts for health in this country, uh, they created a new system, um, which is sort of routing around the CDC. Um, and it may be fine. It's just that the CDC, and particularly the data that the CDC was collecting um, in this case, was public and was out there. And you could see it, and you could use this hospital and ICU capacity data and various things. And in fact, some partners of ours in the COVID tracking project called COVID Exit Strategy were in fact using that exact data. And um, when this new HHS directive came down, that data blinked offline. Um, and that's something that we've been extremely worried about um, at the at the federal level. Oh, really? State, you were worried about the... You, yeah, you kind yeah, of yeah. Like I mean, what, yeah, exactly. I mean, the CDC started to release some of the data that we capture about uh, in the first week of May. And um, when we took it to our advisory board, which, you know, epidemiologists and, you know, public health people and stuff, we were like, well, okay, they started doing this. Should we think about moving over to this data source instead of going to the states? And they were all like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on, guys. We don't know how stable this data source is going to be and mm -hmm. had a lot of feedback for us about the value and importance of maintaining an independent record from the states. And the second I wow. saw that data go offline at the, at the CDC, which we were kind of hoping it was a glitch, but it looks like it's a real thing and it's really offline. 
can I ask for a clarification? You said the data blinked offline. What mm-hmm. went away? Hospitalization, mm-hmm. testing, what? No, uh, capacity, uh, hospitalization capacity. Okay. Um, yeah. So this is just about this data that is sort of not public anymore is specifically hospitalization capacity. Yeah. Not, it's so, not about testing. It's not. No, about, no. Th- thus far, testing data has remained available on all state websites um, as well as on the CDC. But when I say blinked out, what I mean is there was a dashboard you yeah. could go to. And you could see this information. Yeah. Um, and the dashboard is no longer. Yeah. yeah this is, it's not, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's gone dark. Uh-huh. Exactly. Hospitalization capacity is the most important single thing to driving public policy about opening and closing, right? Uh, if you had to choose just one, that is the point where, at least in the U.S., <laughs> places are finally deciding to shut down when their ICUs are almost full. Um, that does, yeah. I mean, that's my understanding of the a lot of governors' decision-making. Yeah. yeah. I mean, whether or not it should be that way, like all the data right. is important, but if there were one that the public needed to know, like, hey, if we don't shut things down, you might get turned away from a hospital because our hospitals are full. That's uh, really important for the public to have. That's a, uh, yeah, that's a good, great point, Jim. And I, I also just, I feel like when I think about this, people... I think interpret these moves about where the data flows and the pipelines in terms of like sort of taking data away from the CDC. I actually, my interpretation of what's happening is it's actually about controlling the release of that information, which is different. Um, And it has less to do with like hamstringing the fight against the disease and more to do with controlling the public narrative about what's happening. And mm-hmm. that, that's why these numbers are, are kind of crucial to have in one place, you know, um, for example, like at COVID exit strategy, um, you know, which is a partnership between former deputy CTO of the U S and, you know, some public health researchers, they were using it as kind of one of their indicators of a state that's having problems. And that is, like you're saying, of the indicators, <laughs> that's probably the, it's, it's the one that um, indicates the problem has become very acute. So to take that information out of the public realm or, or even just make it more difficult to access in the way that um, a lot of other data about <laughs> this pandemic works, where it's like out there, if you're willing to organize 300 people to collect it every day, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. What is the, I mean, I can imagine a lot of scenarios why this is happening, but what is your, why is it necessary to control the the narrative in this way? Like there are going to be news stories about, you know, refrigerator trucks and people being turned away if it happens. So what's the, I don't get it. I think that, you know, one primary reason for it is people do in fact trust the CDC to tell the truth. And so if you undermine them, it creates space for people who don't know what they're talking about to uh, flood the zone with shit. (laughs) Yeah. That's basically, you know, like if you, it's it's exactly what's going on with Dr. Fauci right now. It's like, if you can undermine the guy that everyone trusts, then anybody could be trusted. That to me is what a lot of this is. It's like, if you had the CDC, you'd have this sort of independent technocratic organization that would say, here's what's going on. But if you've got a president 
who wants to define the narrative however he wants to do it at a particular time, then that agency constraints his power to do that. It's just to fuzz and mess and cloud any attempt at, at providing clarity about what's obviously a yeah. pretty bad situation. McKay was on the show. He talked about the censorship through noise. Yes. Oh, that's such a good, I'm going to use, I'm, I'm stealing that McKay. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. So does this affect you and the COVID tracking project in any way? Yeah, we don't think so because we are compiling things on a state-by-state -state basis. It, it is possible, like there's um, some researchers at the University of Minnesota who also um, compile some hospitalization numbers um, like we do. And I got an email from one of them, a little bit panicked because they were like, it, it, this may open up space for the states to stop reporting this on their dashboards. Um, I, do, I was wondering about that, but didn't want to be... Paranoid yeah, I mean, it's possible. <laughs> to be honest, we haven't seen it yet. And in fact, hospitalization data is something that we've seen pretty much rising quality across the board for the yeah. last several months. And But do you think it's possible that certain states that have an incentive to, you know, continue with reopening plans despite data that shows that it's a total shit show could stop reporting data? It certainly is possible. Um is, is it something you're worried about, I guess? Yeah. I mean, we have like sort of active, uh, like, you know, we have a little thing called shift bot before people go start gathering this data in the daily run. And um, as part of like the sort of announcements, it's basically like, look out for changes to hospitalizations, particularly yeah. losing hospitalization data for a particular state. Uh -huh. um, and happily, we haven't seen it. Um, and we're, we're, you know, I will say this about the about the states, even ones that have followed a path that seemed unwise to me, um, we have rarely seen them pull the data out completely. Like we just, that, that hasn't been something. There have been attempts to, you know, like there's attempts to sometimes reduce Reduce the acute nature of what's happening. Like, for example, in Florida, sometimes they like to calculate uh, the percent positive rate cumulatively. So, like, instead of knowing how many tests came back positive yesterday, you know how many tests came back positive through the entire pandemic, which is like basically useless. Uh -huh. Like, it right. doesn't matter. Right, right, right. Matter, so, they're know. kind of messing with. The data is still there technically, but it, exactly. it becomes and, less granular and harder exactly. to tell what's actually going and, on. And, yeah. and like in, yeah. and in Florida, you know, they actually provide, they're the only state that provides the most granular uh, form of data, like the caseline data. Um, uh -huh. And mostly where the states have exerted some narrative control has been at the sort of level of analysis, not at the level of um, putting data out. The, the one exception was when, I mean, Virginia flat out admitted that they were including um, antibody tests, which are sort of fundamentally different from viral <laughs> right. diagnostic tests in their numbers to yeah. make their numbers look better. Right, but right. they immediately retreated from that, to be fair, and other states did as well. And so, you know, who knows if, if, there, if there weren't so many eyes, and not just us, but, you know, reporters in Florida, reporters in Virginia, reporters in Texas, like these the reporters in Georgia, if it weren't for all of that collective journalistic pressure, would these states be doing something different? I think there's a decent argument to be made that they might. Wow. Uh, but given, I mean, the Miami Herald people have just been all over every 
every single thing that the uh, Florida Department of Health has done mm-hmm. and in a really good, solid, just, man, you just like, are like, man, local papers and local journalists who really know these institutions are so good at this stuff, knowing where to put the pressure, you know? Right, right. Yeah. So this is happening this week. The other thing that's happening this week that you just wrote about is that mm-hmm. after this lull, deaths mm-hmm. are starting to tick up again. Yeah. Um, yeah. You use the term or the headline does at least death surge, which mm-hmm. not, which is terrifying. Yeah. That doesn't make me comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. Uh, what does it mean that both of the, these things are happening right now? Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think that when the data gets bad, the administration has tended to retreat. Uh, when the data looks better, that's when they want to run op-eds in the Wall Street Journal saying there isn't a coronavirus second wave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I do think it's pretty clear now. Like you can't, we're, we're basically approaching like the peak um, for hospitalizations for COVID patients. Like the one that we set back in spring when it was so awful, we're approaching that peak again. Um, and I think that it's probably true. I mean, having listened to Jim and, you know, the JAMA podcast and other, you know, other mm-hmm. experts talking about this, it, it certainly strikes me that we may have improved outcomes for people by some percentage. Sure. But there's so many cases, so many hospitalizations, and the area of the country that's being affected by this, um, it has such a greater population than the Northeast, where, where because of the kind of swift action of so many governors... Uh, the outbreak was sort of contained there. And mm-hmm. instead, we have 200 million people where we have deaths, hospitalizations, cases, and the percent positive rate rising in the South and West regions of the country. And even if you've improved outcomes, the denominator there of so many people is so large that if you let infections go out of control in that large of a piece of the country, you're just going to see a lot of people die. <sighs> Um, obviously I think we need to get the most accurate count possible. All of the work should be done to get these numbers as precisely as we can. And also we have to know that, you know, reality is messy and data is a, you know, human construct that is going to have variation and that that's something we kind of have to live with. That is a really important point because this is one of the ways that data are attacked is people saying that death counts are tracked in the wrong way or that people died mm-hmm. of died with exactly. coronavirus and, and not uh, of it and as someone who has filled out death certificates you know been called down when i'm covering on on in the middle of the night someone else's patient has died and i need to fill out the death certificate and i didn't you know mm-hmm. and they had heart failure and pneumonia and they went into kidney failure and and then they had a stroke you know yep. and you put yep. one thing on that as the primary cause so it, there well, is like, some messiness yeah. there to acknowledge but that's why you need something like a CDC, right? Who, when, yep. when you have so many different variables, so much that you need to keep track of and so much data that should be shared, and you can look at, okay, well, this person had heart failure and renal failure and a stroke, um, but as a nation across time, are we seeing spikes in those things or are we seeing this really abnormal spike that's causing people to die and we can help find the signal and how much of the effect really was due to COVID-19 when you have some, you know, agencies that are tracking everything all the time in that, mm-hmm. that level of data, which um, 
just to bring us back to the importance of having repositories like CDC to guide us in removing any ambiguity Mm -hmm. uh, that people might intentionally try to insert there or might be genuinely held. (sighs) Okay. I am troubled and also grateful that you explained this to us. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, dude. So grateful for your work. Good to talk with you both. And um, I I, I think the last thing I want to say is there's still time to change some of these policies and bring case counts and hospitalizations and deaths to a lower level. Like mm-hmm. it's not inevitable. Like we really can actually change yeah. the, the course of what's happening. Mm-hmm. And the only evidence we need is to look at every other rich country in the world, basically. And a lot of poor countries. And a lot of poor countries. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, they've, you know, the just the policies are, that have led to that are slightly different, but it's, it's still like, yeah, I mean, we could change things. We could get on top of this. We could go back to normal life. You know, I could have days off again, like all these things could happen. <laughs> happen you know and um one hope i'll end on a hopeful note here is like you do see that the way that some of these southern governors they are starting to change the way that they talk about this to address head-on some of the things on sort of like the fringe of the republican party about you know let's just go for herd immunity you know and they just like they're starting to kind of directly head-on do the kind of messaging that will be necessary to get the outbreak under control. And that's new because if your governor is out there explaining things and is talking about why this matters for the people of Alabama and all that stuff, there's a chance that you could start to turn things around. And um, I will say I've seen several hopeful signs from those Southern governors that maybe we're on the verge of a policy shift that will avert the worst here. Good. Thank you. Thank you for the hope. Yeah. Catherine really appreciates the hope. (laughs) Okay. All right. We'll talk to you again, I'm sure. Okay. Talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. Bye. 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 All righty. A little bit of hope. You know, I never... There have been issues with CDC in history, but they were all before my time. And I did not imagine in my professional life that I would not be able to rely generally on trusting and being able to access data through CDC. This stuff creeps up on you because we have so much the norm breaking and yeah, uh, yeah. abnormal s- it's things right now. But this is just one of those things that really like it's hitting you, especially. I'm used to people spinning things and yeah. I'm used to underhanded defunding of public health measures or of robbing people of insurance um, mm-hmm. uh, or <laughs> not funding healthcare programs, even though you have the funding right there to do it. But this feels like just, we can't even have access to basic counts of severe disease during a crisis from a nonpartisan agency. Yeah. When you put it like that, it sounds insane. It is affirming this picture of an administration that is just trying to make themselves look good and just trying to take actions that minimize the damage to them in the very short term, but will have serious negative consequences for us long term from hiding data to leaving, uh, abdicating our position of leadership in global health. And that is the reason we're the worst. We're doing the worst of any country in the world. And we have no trajectory for doing better. 
have a good weekend. Yeah. <laughs> you too, Jim. <laughs> On a positive note, Kevin Townsend produced the show today. And Kevin's a great producer. So that's what we'll end on. Yeah. You can write us at socialdistance at theatlantic.com. Um, your questions are super helpful, um, as are your comments. And subscribe to The Atlantic at theatlantic.com slash support us if you want to both get access to all of The Atlantic's journalism and also let The Atlantic know that uh, you're supporting the show. Okay. I'll talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.